Hello and welcome to a new episode of Lowdown. Today, I am delighted to be joined by David Webb to discuss his footballing journey thus far and speak all things recruitment. David, welcome to the show. How are you? Pleasure to be with you. David, um, as we begin with every guest that comes on, we ask them, where did they cultivate this love and passion for football? And with you, it's no different. Um, someone as such as yourself with such an illustrious CV behind you. Um, how did it all begin? Yeah, good question. Um, I suppose my journey started out as wanting to be a football, a professional footballer, first and foremost. So I was at the Crystal Palace youth sector then, so it was a, a YTS back in the day. So showing my age a little bit there. Um, didn't really progress on to sort of where I would have liked. Ended up at Luton for a little spell and then found myself on the non-league circuit for a little bit. Still at 21, 22, still had a big passion for the game. Obviously realised by then I wasn't going to become pro. So still wanted to do something, give something back. And um, I first started out doing academy coaching at Crystal Palace. It was sort of my first journey from there. Did my sort of B licence and progressed on to Tottenham. The same sort of role, but with some recruitment in there as well. And then got a first full-time position as Millwall sort of youth coordinator. Was there for two, three years. And I was combining sort of eights to full teams on youth development, coaching and recruitment. Then I did my academy manager's license. And I did sort of a full circle. And during that time, I was also doing a master's in sports psychology because I was really interested in that as, a, as an additional sort of side subject. And um, I did it by Leverkusen. And that opened my eyes to different aspects of recruitment, different aspects of how to profile players. And the first time I see sort of the sporting director model in place as well, um, from my own eyes, I took on a three-day sort of visit over that period where you had to find into how to find out how the academy worked, how the first team worked, how the club works, and sort of the infrastructure and how it all worked. And um, I got offered a, a sort of potentially a scouting role which was sort of 15s to 18s while still at Millwall and that allowed me to sort of do different aspects of scouting that I've never done before and Millwall were okay with that because there was the clubs weren't sort of nowhere near competition wise and they were really interested in some of the profiling work I did so that led more from being sort of coaching was my first love to more recruitment pathway and more on the profile inside, the character side, combining it with all the scouting and the other aspects of what you find in recruitment. From there, I went to uh, Southampton in a full-time position of 15s to 21. It was kind of like an elite scouting role, so to find the best players in the UK and in Europe. And Southampton at that particular time had a really crop of promising players that have gone through or coming through, sort of Alex Chamberlain, Luke Shaws, James Ward-Prowses, um, Theo Walcott, Bale. They were, they'd come through, they were coming through, it was really developing. So that was a good time for me to, you know, see how that worked at a level and how sort of scout, first taste of scouting into Europe. Got the first chance to work with um, Paul Mitchell, went on to work later with at Tottenham and Pochettino. From Southampton into 2013, uh, I went into head of first team recruitment at Bournemouth. Bournemouth at the time had just come up from the League One and Eddie Howe was the current manager. He you know, done really well, brought the team up from obscurity of nearly going out of the Football League and um, Bournemouth were on a fantastic role at that time. Had to find different ways to be creative in our recruitment because we wasn't the biggest spenders within the league. So it was probably mid-table. So first season, while we was getting our structures and everything in place, we finished 10th, which was really good. And then the second season, we we won the championship and went up to the Premier League. And I think overall, we must have spent you know less than 5 million over the two years doing that, with um, potentially a lot of the players that were... Uh, a couple are still there now, but I've been throughout that premiership journey as well. So that was a testament to sort of Eddie and the club and the recruitment structures and everything in place they had there. 
I went to after that. I went to back to Tottenham for my second stint. This was more like a, a head of elite recruitment role. So <clears throat> under seventeen through to first team, and that was a very big. I had a very big remit in terms of having to find sort of best players, up and coming players that were not going to be going to the academy sector that will be sort of underneath the first team players so your next potential sort of top stars that could get into and have the time to chance to play with um, Pochettino and that set up and be underpinning some of the first team players there so and that was a really successful period at the club because you finished twice in the Premier League some of my roles was into first team as scouting as well so we discovered players like Song and Trippier and Deli Alley and Toby Aldevera and brought through players like Harry Winks you know, to have really, just to name a few during that period that have gone on to, you know, do really well. After that, I um, I took a short period out and then I found myself in Sweden as a technical director of a team called Ostersunds, which Graham Potter was most noted and did some of his best work there as well, bringing them up from uh, below sort of, I think it was... Division five, division six leagues, all the way up to the Ausvenskan, and that was really successful. And the remit there was to continue that sort of model of finding um, top talent within sort of Sweden and also talent, because there was an age remit of 18 to 23, but so talent that had maybe gone to big clubs early, but also then didn't make it. I had the opportunity again to play competitive first team football and sort of refine and rejuvenate their careers a little bit. From there, I um, went to Huddersfield. I was taken out of my contract, three year contract early. And that was a similar sort of role where it was the title was head of football. And Huddersfield at the time had just come down from the Premier League. It had new ownership. It was going for a big transitional period where you had that manager period where he'd been I don't think he'd won a game for sort of 15 16 games so my first role was to look at points to a new a new coaches and then was to look at the playing squad and see where some of the players that wanted to be at the club wanted to stay at the club and sort of build a new identity and a new infrastructure really to try and sort of drive the club forward so under new ownership new managership and with the additional sort of few players and we wanted to really sort of integrate our you know the local homegrown players of our under 23 and our elite talent into that as well so it was a big it was a big year and the first year was you know it was just to sort of stay within the championship which they did and integrate the players and um, we did really well in terms of some of the even known players we took on players like Smith Rowe who's gone on to do fantastic at Arsenal this year so it was a it was a good season all round for the club. So it was a chance to steady to ship and allow it to sort of bed into the championship again and refine themselves and go again at another point. And <clears throat> that was sort of my long journey up until now. Not the worst CV, David, is it? That obviously you you seem like a guy and by lived experience you are a guy that throws yourself at these opportunities and it's very much a non-linear development pathway which you took yourself and you wore different hats throughout your whole career and just looking at the modern day technical director do you think a journey, the journey you've been on is that what's required to be the modern day technical director rather than coming in solely from a coaching background or solely from a recruitment yeah, I think I think now the model sort of changed and evolved to <clears throat> when it first came into sort of especially the UK, it was more having a strong recruitment background and be able to have you know very good contacts, which are both those are still very strong um, in in prevalence now. But I think you need um, a little bit more to you if because the role now will take on different directions and, and you'll have to wear many different hats so you have to have an understanding I would say what helps me in this is I've got a good under my sort of first background was academy for sort of five six seven years um, you know really good clubs such as Tottenham and Crystal Palace and Southampton 
and even Leverkusen to a degree, which I've got a chance to work with some really good people and understand the infrastructure of how an academy works and how the progression from youth talent could be um, developed and have them opportunities to go into first team. I also wanted sort of a different subject in sports psychology because I was really interested in the characteristics and the profile in the players. And that would give me an understanding of sort of some leadership strategies and how to sort of create good environments or new identities and cultures and coaching background as well. I want, you know, I have, I have my license in coaching as well. So it does give you an, an overview. So when you, when you are looking at um, sort of the older strands that's, you know, that, that comes under sort of a sports director's remit now, and even to have an understanding of analytics and data, which is, you know, which is really strong in the modern day game. I think it's to have sort of two or three real strong subjects that you know, and to have an understanding of maybe three or four of those, like a really good understanding and, and to build a, and to have really good people in place to lead those teams of those individual departments as well. And, and the role of a sporting director is to sort of drive the structure and drive the process forward and keep the club moving in sort of the right direction. And throughout that, you have to have a good understanding Like most clubs now will want to develop homegrown players and quite rightly so. So what does that look like in terms of sort of a long-term sort of or short-term strategy? How are you looking to get first-team players integrated into into your into your setup? So you have to have an identity. You'd want a you want a clear philosophy and playing style, not necessarily sort of set formations, but definitely a process and a team that when the fans come to your games that you can identify to say this is how we play. This is us. If there is a change of coach at any point, um, a head coach, if they are, you know, if they leave the club or they get headhunted or unfortunately results don't go their way, then again, part of that sports director role is to have an idea of the best coaches out there for that particular club. So again, it's it's a recruitment across not just players, but through getting the best staff, getting the best coaches and just moulding it and bringing it all together to see if you can you know, bring that sort of positive alignment and structure for the club. And, you know, ultimately football clubs, basically the state of the football club is decided every Saturday, 5pm when the results come in. Um, it's fairly for, you know, an individual such as yourself <clears throat> through the YTS programme, working in an academy environment, to take upon such a reflective stance and realise maybe I need to have an added bit about me here if I'm going to climb the ranks in recruitment or if I want to be a sporting director mm. someday, which you did get in that master's in sports psychology. Now, having the ample experience now between theory and practice, can you begin to describe, David, perhaps where some recruitment teams and where some clubs fail on synchronising both together? Yeah, I, I think I think having that, <clears throat> I think having a clear identity and a clear process of, of, what, of what your club's trying to achieve so from a recruitment perspective in an ideal world you would want your recruitment team to be team to be heavily synced so and that would take a sort of a, a role for the scouts to be fully involved in the process as well so this is how so you want them to be fully trained to say this is how we play this is what our particular players we want look like in each of our positions you have a good fully understanding, not just for the scouts, just to scout the first team and say, off you go, have an understanding of what's below as well, to understanding what's coming in. And then to have an understanding of how your data data works as well. So they can sometimes, you know, scouting is a lot of it is, is done on um, instinct and the eye, which is a massive role still to play. But you want, but you want, especially from recruitment, you want everyone to be fully informed and well equipped before they go out. So that would take a good, good detailed plan in having a direction to say like we are, our age demographic is 18 to 24, for example, you know, in succession planning, we have these players out of contract next year. Um, potentially we might lose this, this and this due to finances or due to this, due to that. So we need to already be aware of that. And then the type of profiles in those positions that you're looking at in advance. So when it comes to sort of near transfer time that you perhaps have sort of one or two or three targets in those particular positions 
or that you're fully understanding that you might have someone from your from your own sort of under 23 or academy that could come up and potentially feel that as well so i think it's just a synchronization of an understanding of all of all your especially recruitment staff being fully informed of, of well in advance of what is going on within the football club they're fully trained they understand you know little bits of the data side of it they understand you know what's in terms of well in advance what where we might need to be strengthening in certain areas and and also if they're in say for example if the recruitment teams have if they're specialists in certain areas or certain countries or they have a certain skill set then you know they're fully utilized that in advance i think it's just detailed planning and having a fully understanding of where the club is because throughout my journey each each club i've worked at on the recruitment side each club has been different in terms of how you profile players so for example we've all got our favorite players that we like to watch or you know certain styles of football that we can you know that we can always lean towards but i think it's having that understanding of what, what does the club need you know taking that emotional part what does the club need what do we need so it might not necessarily be you know our preference in, in type but that's what you want to try and make sure that everyone's fully informed to say, okay, but this is what we do need. And this is the profile we do need. And, you know, your, your staff, especially the scouts and the recruitment team and the analysts and even the coaching staff and the analysis staff that are all seen together to, to understand that. And as much plan as you can get in advance to, to do that, the better equipped you are to try and get ahead of your competitors a little bit. And in that regard, I suppose, from the onset of our conversation, David, you spoke about that trip to Leverkusen being a very formative experience. And I suppose in many ways that helped kind of put together the missing pieces of the jigsaw puzzle for you at the time. Yeah, it did, because I was always fascinated um, in learning the European game and European different different European models. Um, so... Leverkusen I did to complete my academy manager's license but I did a lot of um, trips sort of self-funded myself to over to Ajax and different PSV and different teams in Italy and France and other teams in Germany once I got that flavor and that taste because I was I was fascinated to to have an understanding of the levels I wanted to personally achieve for myself that I'd have to have a good understanding of the global game and how it worked in different in different um, countries and different cultures and how they develop players and how they work and how they recruit players and what's their philosophies and styles just to give a broad understanding because especially to bring back to the UK with that sort of knowledge base that you can use to help help yourself and also help the club you're working at at the time so I think having a you know having a a good knowledge base in those areas definitely right definitely sort of opened my eyes to think wow there is a big wide world out there beyond the Premier League. And I suppose one club in England that certainly does have a differential way of thinking and is nearly quite akin to a black box for youth development is Southampton. And that's a club yeah. you go on to join, David. What was so special about the processes that people before you had embedded within the place at Southampton? And of course, you perhaps had one of the biggest cultural architects of all in Maurizio Pochettino. Yeah, I mean, we were very, very lucky with with Poch because Poch came from a Spaniel at the time where he, you know, he, I think he played, you know, sort of give sort of twelve young players their debut, and he fitted the Southampton model perfectly because Southampton had a had a model where they wanted to get players into their first team. They believed in their system, their developments, and their processes from sort of a young age how they develop players. And that environment they had as well was was quite unique. It was the staff were um, were all kind of at that particular time were all synced towards the same goal. So when the players moved up progressive age age groups, they were coached a certain way to 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 be equipped for the for the first team. So that was that understanding of that Southampton were never going to be the biggest spenders in the Premier League, but they they wanted to be the best one of the best producers of players so they invested a lot in that process rather than you know rather than individual signings for millions and millions of pounds obviously they had to spend in a transfer market to you know to balance out the young players but 
that was where they sort of had their real investment in development of getting the best staff in to develop the best players and having the best processes and you know invested in the training ground and the infrastructure so they had a clear model said right well this is what we're going to do we can't compete here but we you know we, we can compete here this is our model this is where we want to bring the best the best talents which they did so i suppose they was ahead of the game early and realized their their own individual strengths and weaknesses that you know they can't compete against man united man city arsenal chelsea in terms of spending power but what they can do is they can potentially produce as good as players as them that because they're not spending as much that they can get into their first team a lot quicker and a lot younger and have faith in that model. So even down to the coaches when they first um, brought Pochettino through, you know, they, they knew exactly what they was hiring. There was a man that was already had a proven record um, in Espanol of bringing players through and, and developing them. And some of those Espanol players, I think, went on to a lot bigger clubs as well. So they kept they kept true to their development model and they you know th- that's what made them i think during that especially during that period really successful at what they did and i suppose focusing on patrutino once more david i mean any player or staff member that's worked with him in espanol southampton spurs which you had the fortune of again and now psg you know the good reports are unanimous i'm intrigued yeah. that, uh, you yourself having maintained a close working relationship with him, was there anything special in what he did with the players or the staff to kind of create that safe, secure environment? I think I think one of Poch's strengths of being, you know, as well as being sort of a top class coach on a training pitch and very detailed and very hard work ethic, which he had all all of those, you know, at very high level, was he was very authentic as a as a human being. So he was just himself around the training ground. And, you know, he had that sort of Latin um, emotional side to him. So he was very passionate. He was very emotional. But, yeah, he was just very authentic with, with people in general. And he was very, and he was no different in terms of if whether he's speaking to myself, one of the players, one of the staff or the catering staff or cleaning staff, you know, it's exactly the same. You know, you can often see him walking down, you know, Spurs corridors with you know with his arm around one of the cleaning staff you know and and talking to him and asking about their family is so he it was just that real genuine and authentic persona he had as well as being a you know an excellent sort of coach and man manager and I think that's what especially with the top coaches and having the pleasure of working with him and seeing that he was just himself and I think that was and the players recognized it that's why he had a very successful period with him and he was he created a sort of that where people could be open a little bit, you know, and talk and express herself, which sometimes in the modern day game, especially during that period then, wasn't so, you know, it wasn't it wasn't so much talked about, but he encouraged that. He encouraged that with people and players, you know, my door's always open. You know, if I can help with anything. It was just that authenticity. And I think that's what, you know, that's one of his sort of key that's why he will always be, you know, always be sort of well respected and, you know, excellent at his job because he's just an excellent man manager of people. He understands human beings. And without doubt, I suppose, experiencing that from a well touted coach himself, maintaining a, work, a close working relationship must have rubbed up on yourself. Because not too long after Southampton and Spurs, you end up at Bournemouth as head of recruitment under another special, unique manager in Eddie Howe. What was, yeah. was there any similarities between the environments at Southampton and Spurs to what Eddie Howe, Jason Tindall and the staff had created at Bournemouth when you went in? Yeah, they had they had a real unity um, at Bournemouth and a lot of the players that had come up had been with them on the journey sort of at League Two, progressed through to League One and they kept a bulk of the players in the Championship and through to the Premier League. So loyalty was a big one, very loyal to the staff, both Eddie, Jason and their coaching team, very loyal to the staff and the players. They created a a real good environment where players, again, could um, be themselves. didn't have the resources as a Tottenham did by any means in terms of, especially on the recruitment side, we had to be very creative, but the environment was very good. Eddie Howe himself and, and JT were 
were excellent on the training pitch. You know, they bounced off each other and worked really well together. Ed, Ed was obviously the, you know, the main, the main focal point, the main, the main face. But you know, JT was, you know, he's he's trusted sort of eyes and ears, and 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 I suppose if you see him at the training ground, they used to have an office side. You know, they used to have one office, and their desks were side by side, so they worked very very closely together and had a real good understanding. And you know, it was a quite um, relaxed environment at times, but when you needed to be, it, it was um, when you needed to work, it was very high performance as well. So he just wanted to create a culture where um is a sort of like a family club you know a high performance in terms of definitely the way they trained and the way they work ed was excellent again on the training pitch you you know he's more like a teacher Bournemouth had us we had a certain playing style that we wanted to play and um, very possession-based game where we looked to get the ball down and play and exploit teams by creating space and on transition so that was the theme throughout. So we understood when we was recruiting players, that's what we had to do. That we had a certain understanding with that. And again, you know, in terms of man management of of people, you know, both of them were very, were very good. You know, were very good. They, you know, were very, very clear in what they wanted. You know, they were very open to the players as well in terms of you know, wanting them to get the best out of them as people and as and as you know higher high elite performers so two different two different environments but both but both were equally as effective as each other in their in their own ways and obviously it must be noted that your time at Bournemouth was hugely successful with promotion mm. to Premier League um, I mean mm. there during a time David where even by championship standards it was quite a minuscule budget was it nearly yeah. free in, in your own sense to be working with scarce resources, did it, I suppose intu intuitively speaking, did it really let you zone in with intent on what was required for the club at that time? Yeah, it did, because your resources, you couldn't scale uh, as far as wide as, you know, as, as, as a Tottenham in terms. So we had, we had an age demographic, we had a sort of a clear focus. The loan market and the free market was um, was was very active for us as, as that period because we signed players like you know uh, Junior Stanislas and Dan Gosling and then Andrew Sermon and Josh King were all frees. And then if we did spend, um, our main spender was Callum because we you know we felt that he was worth that investment and he'd gone on to do fantastically well. But even smaller investments like Adam Smith for two three hundred thousand, so. It was being really clever with what we had of resources. So we had an understanding of, like I said, how how Bournemouth played, their identity and the philosophy. So we had we had a data that sort of fitted that of how we looked at players, and that was sort of our own our own way of what we what we um, devised ourselves, and that was in unison with Eddie Howe and the coach and the philosophy, etc. Then we had sort of a small scouting team, so we had to be very clear in where we was going to look and where we was going to put our resources each week and, and real focus points. Again, it was good planning, so we knew which players, and we had sort of constant meetings with Ed and the coaching team and, and the ownership and the chairman to know who was potentially interested in our players, who was potentially going and, and where we needed to strengthen at all times. So we was, we was constantly being active within our sort of financial parameters of what we can do and allowed us to be, I suppose that allowed us to be effective. Um, we also developed uh, this character trait system we have because to Ed and the same with Potch and some of the other managers I've worked with, the dressing room is quite sacred. So we had to try and find what we thought character traits within players that would fit that dressing room. What, what are they going to add to the dressing room? You know, what, what are they bringing to the party? What are they going to add? And that's what, and that's again, that's that was another key, that was another key aspect to our recruitment because Bournemouth, it was quite small and quite targeted. We could really, like you said, zone in on you know those those sometimes those qualities where, when you're working at a bigger club where the market is so big, sometimes and unless you get down to a final target, you don't really get the time to really zone in. So Bournemouth was allowed to do that probably you know a little bit more effectively than we could do if you had you know a bigger club where you know your your pool was very wide 
And naturally speaking throughout your career, David, obviously the recruitment industry within football, like elsewhere and many other industries, has undergone significant change. And the managers, as you spoke about, such as Mauricio Pochettino, Eddie Howe, etc., they're huge on the soft skills. I mean, mm. how did you manage to complement data alongside traditional scouting processes at these clubs? Yeah, I think again, it's having a good understanding that the data is there. Is the data can be as effective of, of, of how you how you use it. There's a lot of data out there. There's a lot of data companies and packages out there for you know for, for to be used and to be resourced, but. It's, it's, it's all it's all how that particular club uses it to their best to their best advantage so obviously your baseline comparison against your own squads and players within your, your target market one that gives you that narrows down the pool you know quite significantly and then you're looking at certain individual traits based on your own sort of playing styles again which would cut down quite significantly so that gives you sort of your your, your base outline this is a form of um because we couldn't go into sort of the depth we wanted because based on resources and finance, we couldn't get all the stuff we wanted. So we had to create sort of our own one, which was unique to us and how we understood it. So the scouts were fully trained on that. They fully understood that. So having that in mind and having sort of that good understanding, then you would have well, automatically when they're looking at players, when they go out, um, they're still using their own sort of judgments in terms of their observations, their, their feelings, their, their scouting eye to see, to use all those or, or use all those skills to to get that initial feeling for the player, but also have in mind of, of, of what we had from the data and what was sort of the character things we were looking at as well. And, you know, what potential, and also we had to be, you know, realistic on availability as well. So, um, when we was looking, when we was looking at targets, we was more or less we knew which ones we wanted to look at straight away. So again, that cut. If you marry all that together, that cut down sort of a lot of time, where there's a lot of data out there where a lot of it was irrelevant to us because we were just homing in on ones that we thought would give us an edge at that particular time. So again, at Tottenham, it was, we had four or five different data packages again all all honed into one sort of common goal but we had sort of a wider resource and we had a lot of different frequencies and stuff that we could look at there but I suppose with Bournemouth we were just we had to combine what we had on data with you know really good information really good scouting and, and you know and be really really clever and clear cut in our decision making and I suppose the key thing underpinning those three clubs we've spoken about so promptly thus far, David, is like Southampton, Tottenham and Bournemouth. They all seem to have a solid foundation in place. But what does it look like when that foundation isn't in place? I mean, you had a very tough job when you assumed the role of head of football or operations at Huddersfield Town. Like what yeah. was there from yourself when you took upon the role? Um, you'd remark the club had got up to the Premier League with certain values. But I think the way they recruited in 2018, 2019 meant they lost that. How did you yeah. set up this, just being new to the club too, at a difficult time? Yeah. Um, again, again, I think what they had was in David Wagner, they had that core identity of a certain way of playing and a certain style. And then in the second year, um, a few results didn't go their way. And, you know, through he made a decision maybe to sort of to change that and that changed their recruitment and that changed their identity a little bit and it's a little bit of a gamble and unfortunately it didn't it didn't come off now if they were stuck to their processes and stuff they still may have got relegated they still might not have done but i think it was just a case of once you've got that in place you have to sort of stick with it you sort of see like norwich they stuck with it and they yo yo back up again and, you know, they would have learned a lot from that initial um, first time in the Premier League under this Daniel Farker, Stuart Weber at the helm in those particular roles. And I think Huddersfield, you know, they got them so far. And then when they did panic a little bit, they came back down. And I guess it was kind of going through that new ownership as well. The club was going sort of under new ownership as well. 
and a new owner will always have you know his own ideas what he wants to bring in and naturally you know he's invested a lot of money of his own money into the club so he's going to want to have quite a say on sort of how how he wants the club to 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 look like what how he wants the club to run and and what he wants to see on the football pitch as well so it was kind of managing all of those together and trying to build and build that all together at once so you, i think with that when you when you get into that you just have to prioritize and break it down so the first my first remit was a head coach and the head coach had to fit the values of the club and to get an idea of what the owner wanted I had to try and get that try and find that in sort of a head coach and a head coach that would be good enough to develop younger players through and put them into the first team and also be able to handle some of the pressure situations from players that just come down from the Premier League that may see their you know their future elsewhere either back into the Premier League or crossing to Europe so it was a whole transitional um, period so that was the first bit was just to get that sorted and then to try and concentrate I missed the first window to try and concentrate on what we're going to look at for the January window as well look at the budgets and look where we could potentially players that wanted to leave to try and balance the squad with players we wanted to actually be at the club or players that we could bring in that wanted to be on that journey with us and give that opportunity and example to the younger players so some of the players that didn't want to be there was making sure that we could we had um, clubs interested in them, either via loan or transfer, and to, to try and build in that environment. So that was the second point. And then looking at the footballing structures in place, so how are we looking to achieve this? So looking at the analytics, looking at the, you know, where's our best academy players coming through? You know, which areas, you know, who have we got coming through? Who's realistically going to get into the first team? Then looking at maybe sort of the analysis, the medical into that as well. How does that play them key roles? You know, but what are those leadership positions looking like? How are the teams functioning within that? And just trying to get them to build into this new new structure because when you do that, you know, it's going to be, we estimate it's going to take a two, three year period because of what happened within the Premier League and because of the fallout. So in the first year, it was kind of just stabilising really and to try and put those building blocks and foundations in place to allow for the next person to come in and sort of build upon those. So it's not, again, when they do have to change personnel, players, coaches, that they're changing them with the intent of that the club still remains at the core, the identity still stays the same. So I think you just have to prioritise your building blocks slowly, have your common goal at the end and be brave enough to keep sticking through them. It's quite my opener into basically and great insight into what's required to be a modern day technical director and I suppose one thing you touched upon at the very start David was the recruitment of the managers which were the two Cowley brothers yeah. how for someone who's so heavily involved in player recruitment your whole professional career how did that managerial search look like in comparison to player recruitment from due diligence to the interview process itself yeah, still a lot of due diligence still had to take place um, in terms of, again, getting the right coaches to fit to fit the club. So we looked at, we looked, okay, when you, when you go through this change, you think, right, okay, what, what are we looking at? So we wanted up-and-coming coaches. We wanted ones that had an understanding of the UK league and they didn't necessarily have to be British coaches, just an understanding um have good characteristics where they could come in and, and lead the team straight away because it was going through a sort of difficult period a good understanding of developing young players and some previous successes i.e you know which they had you know they come up from sort of way through the non-leagues and had won leagues and done well in fa cup competitions and we also felt that they could at that particular time when we done sort of that and then you sort of do your certain due diligence on sort of their coaching styles on on the way they looked at their training methods their leadership methods and and then you sort of marry that with you know this is a journey we want to take the club on are they going to be you know are they going to be a good coaching fit are they going to be a good human fit are they going to have the right values and then once you've whittled down a lot of these you're probably left with and then the availability obviously of course and who would you know who could you get 
you're probably left with sort of quite a small market um, of sort of core head coaches and managers that, that fit the that fit the remit. And we did. We probably was left with about eight or nine within that out of the hundreds at that particular time. And given in mind the season had already started and most teams were settled. So um, then within that, then you started to whittle down your process in terms of if um, we felt it was right to speak to them or approach them if they was in the job like the counties where we approached Lincoln to speak to him but once we once we got to speak into approach a club to speak to him we're probably down to the last two or three because we didn't want to disrupt the clubs you know um, in the middle of their preparations and as we were very serious in terms of you know an official approach so it was still a hell of a lot of due diligence to go in place and and, and it was quite a short space of time as well so I think the ideal scenario is when you're in this one is once you've got this identity and, you know, we said this quite a lot um, and your process in place, that once the coach is in place, it's like players, you know, if they start to do well, if the coach starts to do really well and you're winning a lot of games, you become successful. You know, potentially that that coach is going to be looked at by higher clubs than yourself. So then you're already on the, you have an idea of what other potential coaches or even though you're not actively looking you're, where you're actually going to meet people, but you've certainly got an idea and you're certainly trying to build up a small portfolio. So if that scenario does happen, either that they get approached or the results don't go their way and a change does need to be made, that a coach can come in and sort of, again, auto, so it's not so much of a cultural change, just automatically sort of fit in that and hopefully keep the momentum going. And I suppose we spent a lot of time during this conversation, David, um, reflecting upon other people's developments, be it players, staff, coaches. But what about yourself? I mean, what thought processes and, I mean, what questions would you ask now before assuming a new position within the industry? I think I think it'd be having that, having that sort of joint goals, really, and joint values and sort of joint aspirations and, and where you're looking to go. Because I think in such a senior role as of a sporting director or technical director type role and sort of some of the responsibilities that you're going to have to undertake during that period of that club, you have to have, you have to be, you know, you have to have some good, you have to have some good fits from the start. It's kind of like an unwritten contract where you have some shared goals, just some shared values. And this is how, you know, bringing my skill stack to the party and, it might not fit every club, you know, every club, it might not be, you know, it might not be every club's, you know, long-term goals or this is the way they want to go. And, and that's absolutely fine. So for me, it's finding one where you get at least quite a few commonalities where, and the main one being where you want the club to be and how you want it to look like and having that shared sort of ownership and, and definitely, and definitely, knowing that I could, you know, what I've got with my background could definitely sort of make a difference and, you know, hopefully make an impact, you know, small dent going forward. So I'd be quite conscious of, of doing that rather than sort of rushing into an opportunity where if you don't get that, or you don't get that fit and it's not quite right, you don't want to, A, you don't want to be successful, unsuccessful for yourself, but also if you feel you can't deliver what the club's asking you to, then you have to be completely honest with yourself and, even though the opportunity looks, you know, fantastic on paper, it's not going to, you know, it's not really going to be for yourself going forward. You have to be honest as well. So I think it's just being clear of this is what I want to achieve. This is what I want to do. This is who I am. This is my goals and values. This is my strengths and weaknesses. This is where I think I can add value to your club. And if and if they're on the same same as me and I'm on the same as them, then I think it's... Um, that's also a good that's also a good start where you can start to look to look at those sort of potential clubs that you can move forward with and naturally i'd imagine it's quite tough for somebody like yourself who's been on that footballing treadmill you know since doing a yts at crystal palace all those years ago you know most people in football once they're in it's tough to get out so using that time i suppose to reflect i mean what are you doing now spending your time to get ready for <clears throat> forward i mean when david webb assumes a new role as technical director wherever is there anything we can expect to see from yourself which you would have learned from other sports uh industries business which you're going to incorporate 
Absolutely. I think you know, I've had, uh, it's been sort of just over a year now. And I suppose this COVID period as well, where it gives you a lot of time definitely to reflect. And I'm, all, I, I'm always a keen learner. So I'm always looking to learn from different industries, different sports, different businesses, different cultures, different methods of working. Um, very reflective on my previous roles. So, you know, I have written down sort of all, all the things that I think I've done well, all the things that I can definitely do a lot better and things that I can probably need to work on. So um, I think it's, I, there might be sort of one particular thing where I think I'm going to go in and think, right, uh, how I'm going to do this. I think I'm just going to do a lot of the stuff that needs to be doing a lot better and and be more sort of equipped to take on the challenges. And like I said, if you've got a club where you, you're in, you've got quite a few commonalities, I think you're really off to a good start as well. And, and I'm, I'm a keen reader, so I've always got an audio book. I've always got a, a book on the go. I've always, I'm always networking and I'm always you know, looking to study. I'm always looking for that, you know, that little bit of edge where I can take into the next club. So being aware of, you know, the changes of, of data and changes of, you know, modern appliances that you can take into the football club as well. We think, you know, I understand this. I can take this into this one potentially, but may not be so effective in this one. So it's having a good understanding of what all the modern trends are uh, whilst you're in this period from coaching, from data packages to the best staff, to the best potential players and having that awareness of everything around. So when you do go into a football club, you are ready to, you know, to move and be actively and look to, and look to sort of drive it forward straight away. And what's your audio book right now at the moment? Um, I've actually, I actually quite like the, um, I've got one called Edge. It's by a, an author called Ben, Ben, Ben Little. Ben and Littleton, it's, it yeah. just, yeah. yeah Little ben was on this podcast. <laughs> ah, was he? He was, yeah. yeah. Great episode. Go check it out. Yeah. <laughs> I will do. I, I like Ben. He's very, um, he understands, but Ben's got a good understanding of, you know, being sort of where he does in sort of journalism, but he's very, you know, he goes into a lot of detail and, and Edge just gives an insight of looking at probably some of the things we spoke at. It does what it says on the book, you know, it's looking for an edge, i.e. looking at different coaches, coaches, practices, cultures, different clubs where they've had successful periods and where they've had periods of innovation. So, yeah, I read the book, and but I also like sometimes when, I, when I'm doing audio books, I like to listen to the actual person who wrote the book speak through it, whether it be, you know, an autobiography or something like this, where it's the edge. Um, because I think you'd get that more authenticity and that believability in their work. So, again, you know, I've got um, a, a notepad and notes on my phone, that, you know, of about sort of 50 pages of where you make continuous notes on stuff as well and all sectioned into different sections and different areas where when you do go into a role that you know some of them will be applicable and some of them won't but at least you're well resourced and used I've used my time effectively this last year to when I do go back in that I'm going to have I'm going to be a little bit more knowledgeable a little bit more resourceful um, and hopefully a little bit more you know a little bit more effective than what, what I have been as well so and I can help build more than what I've done before it's always it's always improvement with me always looking to improve individually and, and for the club you work out of course it's all about I suppose that commitment to lifelong learning I'm sure there's stuff you're reading now which you probably need to incorporate within two three years there's stuff which you've read in the past which if you incorporate into previous jobs but um finally yeah. to close, for I suppose people who wish to embark in a similar pathway as yourself David if that are at different stages, perhaps about to enter the football industry, or maybe they're in a coaching job or a recruitment job with aspirations in the future, holding a role such as head of football or operations, technical director, so on and so forth. What advice would you have for them? I think it's, uh, I think for myself, I was, you know, first thing I would say is, you know, keep being resilient because before I went to my first full time in football I think it was 2007 I, I went for 15 job interviews and didn't get any of them for full-time positions or different types of ones so first is have that resilience believe in yourself in you know what what you can bring and, and find your and find your unique edge so 
if you're looking long term to be a sporting director, you know, look at some of the courses and look at some of the journeys you think could be most effective to you. I chose, you know, to have coaching. Um, a sporting director wasn't sort of I didn't really understand it back in the day, but once I sort of understood that model of Leverkusen, I was like, right, okay, I need to I need to you know really home in on specific skills. So I need to understand recruitment to a high level. I understand coach development. I need to understand the academy process. Um, I need to have sort of a, you know a good understanding of some of the sort of footballing departments in terms of analytics, in terms of medical, in terms of sports science. So again, but also having within that probably two or three really good things that you're really strong at, and having a broad understanding of of that, and don't be afraid to go out and learn new things. Don't be afraid to look at other industries, other sports. Don't be afraid to network and don't be afraid just to ask questions. You know, if it, at the end of the day, it's your journey you want to get on. So you have to make it happen and be as diligent and resilient and, you know, committed to that as, you know, as, as long as you can. And and then I do think these opportunities, the harder you, you know, if you work really hard on those, the opportunities will, will eventually come your way because it is becoming, you know, I'd say it's a lot more competitive now than probably it was when I was there, but to be, as the role of sport director changes, then you have to be changing with it. So you still have to be continuing to develop those array of skills, especially the levels, if you want to go to championship, Premier League or European level, then, you know, your network and again, your contacts and your network are also key to that as well. So mine's been sort of 19 years and it's still nowhere near finely polished. It's still got a long way to go. So it's, Keep learning, keep being resilient, keep committed, and the opportunities will come. David, it's been an absolute pleasure and an eye-opener speaking to you. Um, I haven't had many people on the podcast. They've all been on illustrious journeys, but I think your own one may take its own unique stance. Um, I'm sure we'll see you back in the top flight football sooner rather than later. But um, listen, David, as discussed, pleasure to have you on and keep in touch. Thank you very much, Connor. Appreciate it.